Welcome to Voices Amped. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ellie Clark. And I'm Vanessa Becker-Weig, and we are your hosts. Voices Amped is a place for us to share space and lift the voices of artists, activists, community leaders, and organizers, all of whom have inspired us and our work. For any Ampers who aren't familiar with our work, we are Voices Amplified, formerly known as The Girl Project. You can learn more about our arts advocacy work or support us by going to VoicesAmplified.net. If you want to put a face to a name, watch our interviews on YouTube by searching and subscribing to Voices Amplified. Thanks for listening. And remember, be curious, be courageous, take up space, and make some noise. Today, we talk with Tanya Torp of Lexington, Kentucky, about her work as executive director of Step by Step Lexington, serving 250 plus single moms ages 12 to 24. She also talks about her personal mission of radical hospitality, her business, Torp Consulting, who works with nonprofits on strategic planning and consulting with businesses on diversity equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And she shares an excerpt from her forthcoming book, Justice House, an everyday guide to radical hospitality, a giant in our community. We know you will be as inspired by her as we are. It is a great honor to introduce you to our fierce friend and collaborator, community superhero <laughs> the one the only tanya torp oh, <laughs> well, tanya torp so good to be here oh Thank we're you. so happy to have you here i'm gonna <laughs> brag about you for a couple of minutes is that okay i mean okay okay <laughs> yeah okay it's fine no 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 okay <laughs> Tanya Torp is an agent for social change and has spent her career engaging in community-based initiatives. An Air Force brat, her words, not mine, Tanya grew up in New Mexico, Washington State, Washington, D.C., and Virginia before making her way to Lexington, Kentucky, where she is based now. Through Torp Consulting, Tanya is a trainer, keynote speaker, writer, consultant, and more. She consults in the areas of strategic planning for nonprofits, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, radical hospitality, and connecting disparate groups and individuals together through social innovation. Tanya is the program director for Step by Step in Lexington, Kentucky, which empowers young single mothers to improve their lives. She has served as the volunteer coordinator for United Way of the Bluegrass, she is the recipient of the Lauren K. Weinberg Humanitarian Award, which is awarded to dedicated and, and to servants in our community to promote respect, understanding, and tolerance among all people. Tanya is currently revising her forthcoming book, Justice House, An Everyday Guide to Radical Hospitality. I can't wait. I know. <laughs> she is the bivocational associate pastor of Embrace Church, served as a missionary in Uganda. Tanya lives in the east end of Lexington, Kentucky with her husband, Christian, a civil rights attorney and their two adorable young sons. She had a wedding of over 1000 guests who were mostly strangers. <laughs> she is, I think, 
I'm pretty sure the biggest Whovian that we know. I'm I'm fairly fairly certain. She firmly believes that carbs are her lifelong nemesis. I feel ya. When she's not empowering young mothers at step by step, she is encouraging girls to achieve their goals through her own nonprofit initiative, Be Bold, which we believe is where our journey started with her. And now you know why she's our very first guest. (laughs) (laughs) Things have have changed. So um, yes, we met through Be Bold because I sought you out. I asked my friends, like, where are these amazing people who care about the arts and young girls? And that's how we met. And several people were like, oh my gosh, you got to talk to Vanessa and Ellie. Like, you have to. Um, and since that journey started, we did, um, we've worked on two things together. We've worked on two big projects together. And then since then, I've become the executive director at Step by Step. So it's been a while. We have just, whoo, it's been a long time. <laughs> but it's yeah. been, been a long time. And, and crazy, I didn't know, I feel like as, as much as uh, all of our relationships feel so important, um, it's funny that most of the time we're working and some of these personal things about you, like being an air force brat and moving all around. I clearly, I know about you and your husband because of the amazing work you do in the community, but I'm learning things just reading your bio going, how do I not know this? I I also think there's just all just like the two of you and other people that you'll be interviewing. We have like, our lives are so multifaceted. Yes. That it's hard to like pack it all in to some conversations because we just are out there doing, we're just influencing the, the circle in which we live, which is important. We we need to know your zodiac sign, I think. <laughs> Sagittarius. Sagittarius. Oh, it's born in December, early December. Wow. What do you know? I, I don't know what that means, like really, because <laughs> I haven't really done zodiacs. I don't know what that means. Um, I, I've heard it. it is high achievers but i know people born at all different months that are high achievers so i don't know i know i know and rising (laughs) signs and falling signs and jumping signs whatever they all are i don't know (laughs) i'm super fascinated with all of that and i'm I'm gonna check that out like that's going to be a follow-up that we we use with the with social media is making sure that everybody knows about the sagittarius because that's really important to me (laughs) Who are, who are the other famous Sagitt- Sagittarians out there? <laughs> Maybe that's the word. Who are the people out there? <laughs> and what are they doing? Well, Tony, we want to thank you for being our very first guest on Voices Amped. Um, we, we, uh, we adore you as a collaborator and as a friend, and we you know, in the time that we've worked together, it has just been um, a great joy. We love having your energy in the room, as I think, as I think most people do. Um, I would love to start off just talking a little bit about the process of the enormous project we all worked on together, (laughs) the labor of love, the Mm -hmm. jump project. Um, would you like to just maybe tell our ampers a little bit about, from your perspective, that project and how that all started? Yeah, so um, it started with me standing in line in a grocery store 
and mm. I was standing behind a young woman who was using her EBT card. And well, I was actually behind someone who was behind her. Um, and so there was a gentleman behind her and then there was me. And as she was, you know, just had her kids in the cart and was checking out, um, he started mumbling things about her taking up our government dollars to buy things that were in her cart. And I, I'm the kind of person, those of you who don't know, I am the kind of person who's going to say something <laughs> when, when somebody is, is being oppressed or being set upon, I'm going to say something. So I just, uh, let him know, you know, that was not okay. And then, you know, gave her her own, like, you go sister, you do your thing. You're taking care of your kids. Um, and the work that I was doing at step-by-step Step, at the time, I was the program director and step-by-step Step is an organization that works with young single moms, ages 12 to 24. Um, and so in Lexington, Kentucky, and we work to empower them and walk alongside of them as they reach their own goals. We don't set the goals for them. They, they set their own goals. And sometimes they just need a shoulder to cry on. And sometimes they need housing and other times they just um, need somebody to say, girl, you can do this. You've got this, you know? And so I was doing that work as the program director at the time and wanting to really elevate voices, which was really interesting how we had all of this voice stuff that we started to talk about, right? I wanted them to use their own voices to tell their own stories. What I realized is that for many years, other people told their stories for them hmm. or made assumptions about who they are, just like that man in line at the grocery store. And I wanted them to to tell their own story. So um, I contacted you all and another friend of ours, um, Frankie Wolf, and we sat down and wrote a grant together and, and somehow found this amazing videographer and um, just set about working with these young moms and learning first how to tell their stories that they could write them. And then you all did incredible body movement work with them to let them feel their bodies, which was incredibly healing on a lot of different levels for them. Uh, and then we all began to see two together, some of the challenges, especially with self-esteem and some of the challenges in general with transportation, childcare, that really affected our process together of getting this off the ground. Uh, that was very beautiful and really frustrating and hurtful in some ways to to us putting like the work in um but also liberating ultimately for the moms absolutely i when i think back um to the process and it was definitely a process and we all <laughs> felt it but then you know to watch that documentary and then bring the women back for voices heard oh i i it's so special and and that is, it, it's all a reminder always for me. This is, this is why, this is why the blood, sweat and tears is to see all of them um, have that joy to come back and, and do it again. Um, I will always be grateful for that process. Yeah. And I'm not really sure. I'll say Julie Edwards, though, because she recorded hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of our work of us doing at the end of at the end of every day almost we would go into a private room each of us and talk about the day and some of the women would go into the room um, these private moments in front of the camera and it really taught me watching that documentary that she put together with Evan and my mom by my side it's gonna make me cry because I'm a crier but just my mom and Evan watching it going I had 
I had no idea. You know, even when you're performing it, people see this wonderful thing at the end. And it's very rare that you have video evidence of literal change happening before your eyes. And I was so worried that they were going to be bored watching it or they were going to be like, oh, that's great. That was nice. But I, they were so captivated in getting uh, insight into the process of the work. Um, and it, it was really eye-opening. I was so... While, while I think all of us will admit it took a few years off our life, potentially, it also, it is the most rewarding thing. It is definitely at the top of the most rewarding thing I ever did. And you gave us the opportunity to work and do that with you. I wonder what inspired, I, I guess, how did you know, how did you have the heart to pull all these women together who had jobs, children? we're already juggling so much um, and say, you need the arts. <laughs> I can bring these women in here and we will make this performance happen. The performance constantly was evolving and changing as we mm. went on, obviously. But um, I guess you're a lover of the arts. Is that true? I am a lover of the arts. Um, and that started with, you know, in ninth grade, I lived in Virginia and we took a trip to Washington, D.C. And I had never, I don't even think heard a musical um, at that point. And we went to the Kennedy Center and saw Fiddler on the Roof with the original oh. actor portraying that part. Yeah. And I was transported and transformed. I had no idea. Um, and so I did not grow up watching, you know, singing in the rain or anything like that. And so that was it. I came home singing musicals and wanting to, do, you know, talk about musicals with my mom. And she's like, what? What is going on? <laughs> and then I remember being in college, too. I wanted that theater experience with the theater kids, but I'm not an actress. Um, so I did lighting for a semester. <laughs> I learned how to, run, how to run the board. And even that, just being around people who are in theater and the, the emotions and the, the quick, like, relationships that we were able to build um, just showed me just what is possible in looking at step-by-step, -step, looking at what is possible when people come together and share life experience mm -hmm. and have this experience together, whether you're putting something on stage or you're writing something together. And now I am a writer and I believe that those experiences, even seeing theater are what pulled me into what can I do in the arts? What is my medium? And um, I am a big supporter of, we have art hanging all over our home from um, artist friends. And we'll try to support local artists. Um, and then we try to go to plays as much as we can and just support what we can support. It's a little bit harder with two small children than it used to be. But um, I remember when my husband and I were courting for the whole first year, he was belonged to some church who decided that they really wanted to support the arts. So they purchased tickets, seasons passes to all of the different local theaters. And that's every Sunday, that's what we would do as a little group. We'd get together, have a potluck and then go to the arts. So it's always been a part of my life since I can remember since ninth grade, knowing that, oh, the arts are so important and being in band. I mean, that was part of the arts and I didn't really mm -hmm. get that. I just, yeah. you know, wanted to hang out with some people, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, the arts are a big part of my life and of my children and, and the people that I'm around, I'm always trying to focus on the arts. So I think that came back to knowing that these young women were gonna have an experience together that was gonna go even deeper than what they normally see. Mm. 
by the time it was all over, did you feel like, well, let me start by saying, I guess, did you have certain expectations, Hmm. you know, and then by the time it was all over, did it meet those, exceed those, not come near those, or were they just different? How did that really turn out for you? incredibly ignorant about the time it would take and the toll that it would take. Um, at one point, just getting them to show up to rehearsal was difficult. And then I, and I hope you all, I know you all remember this childcare, even getting childcare workers to come and volunteer their time or even to try to pay them to come. I ended up one time, I remember watching like seven kids while I was supposed to be there, like helping get them ready for the performance, I just said, all right, I've got to pivot. I got to go watch these kids. The, the childcare workers didn't show up. And so, and that was something that happened more than once. So even those things are making sure that we had food for them when they came. Mm-hmm. Um, so my expectations were exceeded by the product, by what they produced together, what they were able to write and how deep their emotions went um and how they were willing to be so transparent and put that out there for public consumption whoa exceeded my expectations um my expectations were not met by the general public like jumping in to like Mm. receive that to like i i imagined that people would be chomping at the bit to support something like this and in the end i think that's that's something that I notice about the arts too, that we all have seen, like sometimes it's like pulling teeth to get people to come to the thing and then they're there and they're like, oh, it's so amazing. Like, yeah, it's been amazing the whole time. You should have been here. So that my expectations were not met by the general public, but by the moms, um, by you all, by Julie and her partner, Tasha, and just people who showed up again and again to pour into these young women. We had a therapist, um, you all remember that, that Mm -hmm. would come and as they were revealing really hard things, we wanted to make sure that we had a therapist present so that they could process that and not just go home, you know, Mm -hmm. afterwards. And so being intentional in those things, I think helped to create that container where they were really able to to exceed expectations and what they were able to do. but there were so many challenges of even getting getting there um, besides childcare. They were having real life situations were happening in the middle of them writing. I mean, Rhonda had her home broken into. Mm-hmm. Um, Austin will tell you she was in a very abusive relationship at the time um, with a very jealous partner who didn't even want her to be a part of this. Like this, just them overcoming life obstacles was just such a challenge to get them to be able to be present. But when they were, wow. Yeah. Yes. Really special. And I love even just through social media, keeping up with them. It makes, makes my heart very happy. So I I really enjoy that. And Um, they're all doing great. They're all doing really well. Just great. How long have you worked for step-by-step? This will be my eighth year y'all eighth year and i think when we were all together i think it was my third year so it's been a bit since we've done this project together tell us about what you're doing like what we know that you're supporting young single moms i it makes my stomach um nervous to hear about 12 year old mothers you know i'm 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 like 41 and thinking I'm not ready to be a mom, <laughs> um, you know, so it, I have kids and I'm like, I'm not ready to be a mom. 
I have young adults and I'm like, I'm not ready to be a mom. (laughs) So what are you doing with the moms? What is, what is your routine at step step? What's your team? Like, I know it's a not profit, so it's a tiny team. You all have couch talks, which I would love for you to tell our listeners about. Yeah. uh, I love them. So the main tenet of what we do is to offer space. I think that's what we do is we hold space for these moms to, and one part, be able to emotionally um, process what they're going through. Uh, We are not therapists, but we, of course, write a lot of referrals for therapy. But a lot of times people are not ready. Either they're not ready for therapy or they've been forced to go to therapists. Um, About 25% of our moms have been in foster care themselves. Um, And so they um, look at it as just another, you know, somebody's in my life trying to tell me what to do. So we just, first of all, just offer a space where they can process. Um, And then we also have a mentor program that if they want somebody who's going to check on them regularly, who's going to be somebody they can have hard conversations with, um, they can ask for a mentor who will meet an hour a week with them and just check up on them throughout the week. Um, and then our, our staff, my co-laborers are really great about every single week they get some sort of contact from us. And what really moves me is, you know, when it's not COVID and we're able to be together in the same space, we meet every single week. We drive around town in vans and from volunteers and pick them all up them and their kids, offer a space for them to just be. The kids get separated from the moms. Kids get to go have their own really fun programming where they don't even want to leave sometimes. It's so hilarious. And then the moms get a break. And they say, you know, if you ask them why they come, a large majority of them will say, I get two and a half hours alone to just Mm -hmm. be me um, when they don't have that space any other time in their lives. Like that's not really offered to them where there's just two and a half hours of being a young woman with other young women. Um, So offering that space, but I also think there's this huge empowerment piece to this that once they have a space where they feel belonging, a sense of belonging, then they're maybe able to start thinking about their future in different ways. So what do I want to do with my life or what do I wanna do right now with my life? Um, And then maybe some things later. So we do a lot of, um, we have a, a kind of a, a piece of the program called Dare to Dream, and it is motivational interviewing. What motivates you? What um, slows you down? What? How do you get distracted in your life from meeting goals? And then let's help you set some goals. And it's a process. It's not just like sit down and go, so what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Like it's a process where we meet several times. Um, if they have no idea, we work with the Kentucky Career Center where they take assessments to kind of see what they're good at. Um, that kind of thing before we start to help to move them in a direction of being, you know, financially independent. Um, Financial independence brings with it this um, opportunity to not be held down by someone who's abusive in your life. So many of them stay in abusive situations for for financial reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's incredible to watch a young woman come out from under that and stand on her own two feet. But oftentimes it takes a long, long, long time to get there from like just trauma in your life. So we just offer a space, we hold space for them and then help to lead them to next steps, actionable steps that are going to help them get where they wanna go. Um, During COVID, we have pivoted, just about everything's online now, but the biggest change in the first time in 26 years, we're paying their bills. We are literally, 
campaign. Wow. So we have done a huge campaign to raise money because we know most of the daycares did not open back up fully mm -hmm. after the quarantine. And so my daycare, for instance, had 20 kids. Now they only take 10. So mm -hmm. if moms are not able to get their kids into daycare, they literally cannot work. Yeah. Like just can't. And for those with school age children, they're doing this non-traditional, you know, learning with their kids, this NTI. So they have to be home with their children. There's no other way. And so we, and this started happening in around early March, we started getting an inkling that this was going to start happening. And so we did a survey called Every Last Mom. We serve over 250 moms and kids a year. We called everybody and said, how are you going to be impacted if schools close down, if you know, you can't take your kids to school if, or to childcare. If, you know, there's a whole shutdown of our country, how, how would this affect you? And most of them said, I'm not gonna be able to pay my rent. I'm not gonna be able to pay my bills. And so we raised some money um, to help them pay their bills. And so there is currently a moratorium. I don't know when this will air, but there's currently a moratorium from the CDC that says you cannot be evicted if, if you are unable to pay your rent because of COVID related reasons they will still owe that money which is what people are not talking about wow. you're still going to have to pay that money when all of this is quote unquote over right and people are going to be devastated we have not even touched the surface of what that's going to do to people to owe two years of rent all of a sudden oh my gosh right so we have been paying the rent because we don't want them to fall behind yeah uh, and then uh, we pay full rent and then up to $300 for other expenses per month. We pay car notes. We pay cell phone bills. Uh, we uh, pay if some expense somebody needed to get tires so for their car to be able to run properly. So we've been able to do that and we'll do it till the money runs out. Um, so yeah. um, where is there a place to find where people can give money to Step by Step? Absolutely. They can go on our website at sbslex.org um, slash donate. And you can see there, there's an emergency fund for our moms and you can just donate to step-by-step Step and you can designate it for emergency funds. And we'll continue to, we, I mean, we don't know how long the after effects will last. Everybody's, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people are now able to get the vaccine um, but that doesn't mean that everybody's going to get the vaccine or that some people know where to go and it's going to be a whole process. So where we want to continue to be of service as long as we possibly can. And how do moms find you and how do you find moms? Um, it's usually a lot of word of mouth. Like they'll tell their friends, oh my gosh, girl, like these people, like they don't want nothing from you. <laughs> You just have to show up and be a part of the program. Um, and, you know, we're a faith-based organization, but we do not limit who comes to our programming and we don't like force it on people. Mm -hmm. So we have every walk of life. Girls will come and be like, mm, it's cute. Y'all love Jesus. I don't. Don't want none of that Jesus stuff. Mm. I like that you love me. <laughs> I mm -hmm. like that you're going to give me these resources that I need. And we're like, yes, like you are welcome and we're going to hold you tight, you know? Um, and then there's other young women that are like, listen, I need some sort of higher power something because <laughs> this ain't working. Like, hook me up. <laughs> yeah. So we do that too. But um, the, the basic tenet is like, we are going to continue to support these young women um, in all facets of life. There's no one else doing what we do. 
Um, and I think one of the things that people might take for granted with a nonprofit is that this is, while we can give you a lot of data on how this works, this is not a data process, right? One girl might stay for three years with us because she really just needs us to hold her hand through life or to walk beside her while somebody else comes and she's got it in a year. She's got what she needed. She's out. Um, somebody might come for just emergency purposes. I um, just got beat up by my boyfriend. They've taken my child into custody. I want to get my child back. What do I do? Um, and we'll walk alongside them through that emergency. And then there's others who are like, listen, I want to revamp my entire life and I want to start a career and I don't even know where to begin. Mm -hmm. So there's so many different um, circumstances and so many variables that we just are malleable to whatever it is that they need. Mm -hmm. um, and to the credit of our board and our donors, they understand that this is a process. It is not a, you've gone through this program for two years, now everything's fine, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's, that's what I love about this is that it is individualized towards whatever the moms need and the kids, you know, kids, mm -hmm. the kids too are part of our, our organization and a big part. And we really care about empowering them too, because this is also generational. Mm -hmm. um, about 95% of our moms are living at or below the poverty line and many of their family members, it's the same. So they want to break some cycles. And so that's what we work to do. Do you have, do you have any uh, favorite success story of one of the moms? Yeah. So Austin, who, you know, um, yes. we're not going to share <laughs> last names or anything, but this is a young lady who mm. is part of the jump project. Um, just a beautiful redhead. Just this gorgeous girl mm -hmm. who, came into she was actually my first um case when i was the program director really so my yeah, very first that. case i would tell the girls on thursday nights anybody want to come see me and do some case management and she was the first one who took me up on it and showed up at my office diligently every single week mm -hmm. just to talk and we had to grow a relationship and um she had a boyfriend that was incarcerated um for stealing from her own family and he was ready to come home and she was like yeah i so i want to talk to you about that process of bringing him back home after we've been away you know for two years and as we started talking more and more over the weeks and weeks and weeks i realized oh he's incredibly abusive he has done some horrible things to her um but she's ready to bring him back into the household. And so I'm like, so how do you feel about that? And let's create a safety plan that if you are going to bring him back into the house, how are you going to protect yourself? And now your child who he's not been around, how are you going to protect your child? So being able to help her think through that without being like, you need to leave him. You can't, you shouldn't bring him into your house. Cause none of it's like, it's not my life. It's hers. Yeah. So to be able to say, you're going to bring him home. Let's, let's build a safety plan so you can get out if you need to. So we did this power and control wheel and this cycle of violence and a light bulb went off. She'd never heard any of this before. And she said, that's what happens. This is our cycle. And I don't think I want that in my house. I think I want him to prove it first. And I said, well, he can take classes. And so we gave him, um, referrals to take anger management classes and to learn how to be a parent and he didn't do any of it and she said there's my answer 
And so she was just doing so well. She got, she started to learn. How, she got a mentor. She learned how to have a savings account. She saved enough money um, to take her child to uh, Disney World. That's what she wanted to do for her son. And so she was so proud of herself. She bought a car. She maintained a job. She started being, you know, really careful about toxic relationships in her life. She started therapy. Everything was going great. Joined the Jump Project. Then met a guy. And this guy was so abusive. So she just went back into that pattern. He said all the right things in the beginning. And then he had children too. So she got really close to his kids and was like their second mom. And so we started, she started disappearing. And we were like, where is this girl who like, she would be bring, driving girls to our program, right? Where is, and we would just keep in touch with her. Like, hey, we love you. I know things are going on in your life. I don't know what's going on, but I love you. And no pressure, just let me know I'm thinking about you or send her a card in the mail. And finally, um, she started to let us know kind of some of the things that were happening. There was in, just incredible violence, incredible violence and um, being isolated. Um, and so finally she came to my office. It all culminates with months and months of this. Um, she finally comes to my office one day and she's like, I'm so how everything's going. She just shows up unannounced. How is it going? And she's like, everything is awesome. I'm so happy. Things are going well. And I just looked at her and I was like, you are telling me a bald faced lie. I know you, you're not happy. What's going on? And she said, I'm terrified every moment. He's going to kill me. And I said, you leave today. So we packed her up and moved her to a new state that day. And uh, she is doing super well. Um, she had to go through a lot of healing, tons of therapy, um, really just great stuff. Uh, and she uh, came back and spoke at Step by Step two years ago and told the girls what to look for in an abusive relationship, how she got out, what has it done for her self-esteem, what she looks for now, how she... Um, is very careful who she introduces to her son. Mm -hmm. Just all of these things. And the girls gave her a standing ovation and were like, she made it out and she was where we sit. Mm. It was so powerful. And then just a few weeks ago, she got married. Um, she bought a house. Uh -huh. uh, she is doing very well, very, very well. So she's one of my favorite success stories to see that it really just shows that just because you go to a program, that doesn't mean that everything changes in your life mm -hmm. and that it's a journey and a process, and but that you can overcome those patterns in your life. And she has, 1000%, she has. Incredible. That makes that makes me so just giddy to hear that she's yeah. got married and got a house and is in that good place. And he's a good guy. And uh, she also said, because I got to meet, I got interviewed him. I was like, listen, <laughs> we done been down this road before, sir. It's like, I need you to talk to him first before I say yes. Yeah. <laughs> Even though she's like long gone from our program, but she's like, I want to start a step-by-step -step in my state now. And I said, all right, you let me know when you're ready. So yeah, that that's was, a, that's a huge that's success. She, I remember her showing up, like talk about, like you're saying, showing up for your all's meetings, like, even, you know, the, the real time scary things that we were going through with some of these women um, that were actively happening. I mean, she showed up after that, you know, before she left the state, she showed up again and she was there and committed and so smart, so bright, so charismatic, like she's unforgettable. Yeah. 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 And there's lots of Austins. 
in our program, you know? Yep. So as you can all tell, Tanya Torf is such an eloquent speaker. (laughs) Could just listen to her for hours. And which brings me to a, a, a question. Why did you decide to start Torp Consulting? Yeah, so this is a really good, like, segue into the different passions of my life. And there are particularly women that are following you all and following this journey. I did not know that you could have more than one career. I was never taught that. And that you can have more than one passion and pour into them. Um, And that you could cultivate other things in your life and not just be in a little box. And so um, several years ago, I started taking, um, I was working with an organization called Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, just volunteering with them. And they are really big about empowering people in Kentucky to learn how to lobby their their legislators and learn the law and learn how to uh, follow bills and how bills become laws, all those kinds of things. And they would send us and pay for us to go to different trainings. And I started like having a real huge interest in racial justice, uh, racial reconciliation. Like as a pastor, I'm really about like, how do we reconcile? Or at least that's what I, what I thought. That's what I, what I was going towards. And I, one of the trainings that I went to was Racial Equity Institute in North Carolina. Changed my life. I went for a weekend and my husband and I went and the things that I learned about racism in our country, that it was a systemic problem and not just a group of people that are racist, really shifted my paradigm. And it was no longer us versus them, but it was let me find out what are the underpinnings and how can I reveal those underpinnings? And then from there, how can we have true conversations leading towards action and change together? Um, and so I remember the thing that grabbed me the most um, is something I teach in my workshops, or the history of racism is one of the workshops that I teach. My father, as you mentioned at the top of this, was in the Air Force, so I'm an Air Force brat, and just come from a long line of people in the military. And I learned that after World War II, black and brown soldiers were not given the GI Bill and were not given um, the same kind of breaks on um, mortgages, like loans, as white soldiers, Mm. something they were promised. And when I started to think about those implications, like people would say, yeah, that's back then, Tanya, we're, we're done with that, right? But what I learned is how that still impacts us right now mm-hmm. and how gentrification happens in the same neighborhoods that before were redlined where black folks were not allowed to even get loans because they that was considered a redlined area and when i learned how they did it to soldiers when people tell me i love this country i care so much for this country america first i say then how can we be okay with that Mm-hmm. that it still happens and that it's still being affected by a certain population. And so that's what like I wanted to learn more and more and more. And so I hear, you know, you go to trainings, you go to trainings and workshops and then you like put it in a folder and kind of stick it 
away. And I said, no, 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 people in my community need to hear about this. Mm -hmm. So I would bring back what I heard and just, um, I'm a natural facilitator. So I just started sharing the things and asking permission, like from different organizations, can I share what I learned? And then I just started doing the research myself, putting together workshops and no longer is it to me about reconciliation because what are we reconciling towards? There's nothing to reconcile toward. It's always been this way, mm. but it's about um, building something new together. So once we know, then we're responsible for that. Now, how can we build something new together? So mostly organizations want to change their structure. Um, uh, boards want to be more welcoming and more inclusive. Um, and so they're hiring me to come in and share not only the history, but how then to, can we move forward? It's not just about like, let's just talk about the history. Okay, everything was awful, you know, for a certain group of people or certain groups of people. But how do we um, start to come together to make sure that we mitigate some of that and move forward and being more equitable and inclusive and more true to who we want to be as human beings? So that's how that started. And, and then I started doing strategic planning with people, which I really love to get with an organization and just like plan their future with them. Um, it is so much fun to me to see it take from like these little ideas to like, we have a full blown course of action. Mm. Yes, yes. And to see them doing it jazzes me. But I also love to hold the container for these conversations about what can be. Um, so I've been called like a somatic um facilitator because i can read a room so i can tell who's getting it who's not it's uh, much like acting i think when you're from the stage you're like okay i gotta play to that one right there because <laughs> it's very similar that uh you can pick up on the energy of people and just go all right like okay we you didn't get that concept we're gonna have to talk about this some more <laughs> yeah and i will say that i've sat in on you know, I had a company hire me interested in Voices Amped and the Diversity Inclusion Committee that I helped start at OU. And they were working on their diversity and inclusion statement. And the most diverse group of people I've seen in a room at that company, right? I'm like, oh, this isn't what this company actually looks like when I'm at my desk. And my anyway, um, I guess they were really excited to get that statement on their website. And I'm thinking, wait, we're not going to do any training. We're not going to talk to the company. We're just going to slap mm -hmm. a statement up there that we are not putting any energy behind making a true statement, which is scary um, that people want to write really pretty words and say, this is who we are. And everybody mm -hmm. inside the organization knows that that ain't true, you know? So I wonder when you're going into these companies or somebody says, we want you to come in and work on equity and inclusion in our company with our board, like what, what are your, what's your first priority when someone says that? Like, are you talking to the company about what they need and deciding if you're the right person or are you going in and getting a feel for the space and seeing if you feel like you can contribute to that company? Like, how does that, mm -hmm. how, as an independent consultant, how does that work? I say no a lot. Good. <laughs> and I've, I've had to learn that because if you're not serious, then you don't need to hire me because I'm not going to be a figurehead. My name's going on this training, right? Mm -hmm. So I first talk about what do you need? A lot of people just want to know what's your hourly rate. And I'm like, no, no, no. Let's talk about what is the, the tenor of what's happening? What do you need? And what are you trying to do? Mm -hmm. um, and then I let them know 
racism will never be solved by a workshop. Mm-hmm. So I'm honest. So great, we're gonna have these workshops and everybody's gonna have cultural competency now. We can use the same language and everybody's on the same page. Doesn't necessarily mean everybody's on the same page. Mm-hmm. And so I um, let them know it's not just a one and done. You're gonna see me for a while. <laughs> so if you're hiring me and you really wanna make a shift, culture shift does not happen because somebody took a workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually water flows from the top. So I no longer work with people who say, this department at this university, I made the mistake of doing that twice for a a local university. This one department wants to get it. Mm. Well, if the university doesn't want to get it, then what are we doing? Mm -hmm. You're wasting your time. Because as soon as you leave, you have to start all over again. So I no longer put myself in, in those sort of situations. If you're looking for true change, then I want to be a part of that. Um, and I want to be a part of building something that I know is going to take a really long time. So that's my first, like, we'll sit down and talk about what is it like? What are some of the things you want to accomplish? And then I also share my expertise of here's what I've seen that actually works. Here's how long I think this is going to take for us to do at least this part. And this will not be the only time you see me. So you're going to have to commit to um, being with me more than once. Um, and then what I love to do is throw a bone to my other facilitator friends. If it's not something that I can do or that I'm that I have the time commitment or something that they need a little bit more deeper. So I have a friend um, named Opa Johnson who is amazing at coming into a company. She's a black woman who comes into a company and says, let me look at all of your documents and I can tell you <laughs> what's going on. Ooh. So if they are looking for someone to help them write bylaws and, and to really look at policy, um, then I'm going to say, Opa's your girl. Mm. So I'm going to do this part with you, but let's get, let's get Opa in here to do the rest of this um, because you're going to need a multifaceted you know, approach. And listen, you need to pay people for their time. Mm. So is this something that you really want long-term? And to the credit of those who have hired me, it has been amazing to watch them flourish and change and grow. I will tell a quick story about an organization. I work a lot in central Appalachia too. I work in a lot of white spaces um, where there's not a a large population of people who uh, look like me, but they want to be inclusive and it's not just about a statement. And so we're we're the first, I'm meeting with them four times. The first one was uh, the day after the insurrection. (laughs) Um, The second one was the day of the uh, inauguration of, this president, um, President Biden. And so I just stopped before anything and I said, um, what am I feeling here? They're a very progressive organization. And um, I said, what we need to do right now is just hold space before we even start today, hold space for the fact that many of you have family members that are not happy about this, the election results. And you're holding that tension and it's really hard. And we need to acknowledge that people, even in, on this call, even though you tell me y'all progressive um, and that's you're all re- heading in the same direction, might not be happy and might be terrified. Um, and then we also need to hold space for the fact of where we're at and the clients that we serve in this space, what they're feeling. Before we even move into what we want to do as an organization, we need to hold that space and be in that tension and talk about that. And two people, 
admitted for the first time, no, I'm not progressive. I've been at this organization. You guys have not known. I have not had a voice mm. to tell you how I feel because I have been going with the progressive flow here. Mm. And this is not what I feel. And I said, this is the most important thing that has happened in any part of the training that we could do is that you all have made a brave space for your co-laborers to be able to say, I don't agree with you. And I would, I would vote for the other guy if I could do it all over again. And where is the space where we can actually come together to do some things in this honesty? Mm. And it was the most beautiful thing that I'd seen where people were respecting where one another were coming from and then starting the conversation from there, not with lies, not with going along to get along, but like, here's the truth of where we're at and why I'm terrified. And you may think it's all great, but I'm terrified. Let's start from there. Mm. Now we can do the work. Now we can do the work. That's incredible work, Tanya. And I, I one of the things that I love about what you've talked about and, and what I've read about the work that you're doing is the, the actionable steps, like, again, going beyond the workshop, because I don't always think that, you know, organizations are, are willing and wanting to put in the work that has to be, has to be done. And um, how can, is there any words of wisdom for organizations out there who um, help them understand the importance of that work needing to be done? I think, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think that, I think that I, I respect the fact that running an organization, as you all know, is probably one of the hardest things mm -hmm. that you can do to try to bring everyone together on the same page, change culture, affect, affect change, stick within your mission, <laughs> not to mission drift, um, stick within your vision, um, and to continually evolve all at once. Mm -hmm. Really hard, then throw in the mix, oh, now we got to deal with racism, <laughs> systemic racism. <laughs> Um, and how we go from here, right? It's a whole, it's a whole thing. So I think having intentional conversations that are facilitated first about what do we actually want is important because a facilitator is going to be able to pull some of that out. So I would say um, there's a lot of organizations that are not, that don't have a lot of money. Be willing to spend you know, at least a few hundred dollars to have a facilitator just start the conversation with you mm -hmm. so you can see where you're at. You may not think, okay, that is five years down the road from, for us to be able to even think about racism and how it affects our mission. Um, but let's just have the conversation about where people are and about terms and even microaggressions is a good place to start. If you've got like, you know, what boards, the mistake that boards make are, uh, we need one black person. We need to get a Hispanic over here. We need we need to get a, a queer person. We got to do that, you know, rather than saying, all right, what what are our values? What do we need to be aware of before we invite people in? So as you might have seen, Ellie, at, I can almost guarantee you anybody that comes to a campus to do this work does not last very long. They'll stay for two or three years. You're, you're like diversity person um, because they don't they don't really have any power they're there as a figurehead. So in order to open up that space, you have to prepare people before, you have to prepare the staff and the environment for bringing in diverse people. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, somebody will say the wrong thing 
somebody's going to offend. So, and, and I'm not talking about this myth of council culture. I, it is someone's going to do something to cause harm. And then someone's going to be disempowered and you have lost what you were trying to build. So it starts with let's even bring in somebody to talk about what is a microaggression and are we ready to even have somebody on our board or our staff that doesn't look like us? Is this organization ready to do what needs to be done to receive people? And that means just being honest. So that's where I would start is let's have a conversation first about are we even ready before we try to bring people in, but also what's the, what is the current climate? We have to get real about what our current climate is at this institution or in this nonprofit. And then maybe we talk about what are we gonna, what do we wanna do going forward? It also can start in the strategic planning phase. So that's the third place that I would probably see it is if people are ready to do their strategic plans and your strategic plan does not include um, anything about structural racism, it's time for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to be explicit about that and about what you're going to do. What's a, what's a grievance policy if somebody feels like they've been wronged or something has happened? Um, what is a way forward to have discussions with people who maybe don't agree that there, was a, that there should be a grievance? What are we going to do in that instance? And that can be carried out um, in the strategic planning. I know for my organization, our board just sat down and did it and they said, maybe we should think about a, a quota system. Maybe 50% of the people who are on our board need to be people who we, we have served, um, mm -hmm. but also people of color. Like, do we do it that way? There's a lot of different ways to do it. Not saying that's going to work for everyone, but to include that discussion in your strategic planning is a, also a good way to go too. I think there's so much stigma around the word racist mm -hmm. that we haven't given per people permission to say, Maybe I am racist because if I admit it, if a company admits it, you know, um, they they feel like it'll sink them. So they try to fix it without ever admitting that it was a problem, right? Because there's so much stigma around it. And it's so scary to confront, am I racist? Maybe, maybe uh, of course, we all have learned for years in this systematic racist culture, um, things that are really hard to unlearn. So mm. I think giving people permission to say you are racist and that is not uncommon and we are going to work to fix it, but even giving them permission to say it without, um, without it being the downfall of them or the company itself is really important and giving people permission to say it, acknowledge it and actually do something to fix it rather than I'm going to ignore that because I'm scared of what might be revealed if we go down this road, um, which I think is what's happening with a lot of, they're like, oh, well, we'll make a statement and we'll try to do better, but we're not going to look at, at our history. We're just going to move forward mm -hmm. in a non-racist way. So uh, yeah, I, your work is so important and the people doing the work with companies is so important. I just... I'm so glad that it's something that you found, you know, you have a passion for and that companies get to have you in the room. You're, you're a good force to have in the room. You're a good I, voice. I'm thankful for that space because that, it really started too as a, like a space of just anger and what can I do, right? Because I'm tired of being angry about it. What can I actually do? And I like to come at it from, we are all a part of a system. So I think that gives people a little okay, I don't have to say I'm racist. I'm a part of a structural system 
that there is internalized racism for people of color. I can t I get to tell as I'm talking about the history of racism, that's why I start with that because then it paints a picture of it being structural and you might not have had anything, anything to do with that, but you have to see how it, we are built on it um, and our country is built on it. And then you can see how other isms come from that. Where do we get it's okay to, um, to cause violence to people who are queer? Where do we get that it's okay to cause violence to women? We, it, the, the foundation is the racism that's infiltrated. And so I like to share with people like, I am a product of the same thing. I have internalized racism that I have to overcome. I, I remember starting this, these trainings and being walking down the street in my neighborhood and seeing a group of black men and crossing the street. Okay, I'm socialized to that, right? So then how, why would I, why would I do that? I mean, for me, I would probably should probably be more afraid of a group of white men standing together or white women standing together about what something that could happen to me um, or just a group of people in general, multicultural cultural group of people. Um, and so why did that fear come up in me? And why did I suddenly cross the street? And how do I combat that on a daily basis? Because that is internalized because of what I've experienced. All of us are a part of our experiences, what we've seen in media, what we've seen, what we've seen in, in experience, what people have said to us, the books that we've read, um, how we were socialized with history, which did not tell the real picture. If you went to public school, you never learned the real history. So now we're learning the history and people are feeling like I'm sitting in rooms with people who feel like they've been bamboozled. Like seriously, why didn't we know that Christopher Columbus was a, ra a rapist and a murderer and we've been celebrating this this you know history yeah directly why did we think there was nothing here already that there wasn't already a matrilineal system of trade and beauty and incredible um um civilization before people started exploring why did we not know that because we weren't taught that yeah. and so when you start there rather than even saying everybody's racist starting with we have a system that has been built on the backs of others and we need to acknowledge that and learn about it so that then it starts to inform where we're at. Then we can make some good decisions. <laughs> I'm, I'm just taking that all in because I, uh, I just, I think that approach is so important and it, it puts us just kind of all on, I guess, kind of a, a playing field that we can understand. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think maybe we're going to switch gears a little bit because I cannot uh, end any type of conversation with you today without talking to you about just the amazing community person that you are <laughs> in the, I, I want some details about the justice house. I want details about a thousand guests at your wedding, but most of them were strangers. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. We're very. I I have married an interesting person who is okay with me being interesting. <laughs> so yeah. Long story short, we moved and we. I and I say this. There's a video on. I think that's on my website. Maybe still um, from a creative mornings talk that I did, that talked about how we literally parachuted into our neighborhood with a savior complex because it was a, a very uh, advertised to us as a poor neighborhood where it was just drugs and prostitution and all of this. And we parachuted in and started talking to neighbors, praise the Lord. And the neighbors were like, hey, guess what? You're stupid. 
<laughs> we actually don't need you and we actually know what we're doing and you know so we parachuted in thinking that we were going to come and bring hope to the neighborhood and change through our christian religion um and <laughs> the neighbors were like yeah so we have jesus um what we don't have is a lot of resources here because we are under-resourced neighborhood because it's been purposefully under-resourced so sit down on the steps and let us teach you mm. <laughs> and, um so what we learned is just how arrogant and ignorant we were we did it wrong um like so many others um to come to a neighborhood that either either if you're coming to this neighborhood you're coming because you're going to get cheap housing because near downtown um, and you're going to gentrify the place or you're coming because you're like a bleeding heart and you want to change something or you're coming because it's the only place you can afford. Those are the three reasons that you would come to my neighborhood normally. Um, and so we came because we were thought, oh, we're going to make a change. And to the credit of those neighbors, they were like, just get to know what the real issues are here. And it was not drugs and prostitution and gunfire. It was we live in a food desert and there's no grocery store and there are no um, living wage jobs and there are absentee landlords who are holding our neighborhood hostage with their properties that they're not caring for wow those are the problems mm. it's not what you think at first glance and then it's also the gentrification so when it was a redlined neighborhood it was a black and latinx neighborhood then like now it's becoming more and more of a white neighborhood where houses are being flipped so there's just like this transition that's happening too um and so we started to get to know the neighbors and then we said you know the best way to do that and to like let them know what we're really all about is just to invite them to our wedding so we literally went door to door in the east end of lexington and invited every single neighbor that lived in the east end oh my gosh eventually got a crew of people but all of our we made these invitations and we would knock on the door and people would be like my favorite was like are y'all crazy like, are y'all high what is happening um my other favorite was like can i bring my cousin like <laughs> so we just uh got some students together and a bunch of friends and some com community organizations and said let's just throw a big party for the neighborhood don't bring us gifts bring stuff for the neighborhood so we gave away clothes and shoes and toiletries and we work with the nest center for women children and families and lots of other nonprofits. we've registered voters we tested for hiv at our wedding uh, I got to play skee ball in my dress because it was a big carnival. There was cotton ski candy. Oh. I played skee ball. There was a skee ball inflatable. It was the best ever. Oh and my we just gosh. had a really good time. And then people were like, there should be more community events like this in the park. And I was like, well, it's kind of a wedding, but all right, yeah. <laughs> so there are rumors that anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people showed up that day. I don't even know how many people. I just kept hugging people. I just kept Aww. hugging um but it was really special there are still people we've been married now for 10 years and there are still people that walk down the street and see us walking and they're like oh you're still married good i was at your wedding <laughs> wow which i love so and then justice house we so we lived in the neighborhood and and um there was a, a family that lives in the house that we purchased so we were renters and we um became friendly with a um a couple that wanted to eventually they wanted to sell their house and they wanted to make sure they sold to someone black and my husband's white but they said we, we really need there's so much gentrification happening we want to move you and so there's no way that we could have 
at all afforded our house if it wasn't for them giving us a good deal. And then, um, so we decided, what do we want to do? We literally just had talks about what do we want to do with this house? Because it's a lot of house, like 3,000 square feet. What do we want to do with this house that is for the neighborhood? Um, and so we started um, a breakfast that, well, we continued a breakfast. The people who owned the house used to have a, a small breakfast on Saturdays where they mm. pancakes. And so I said, we're going to keep on doing that. So we call it Heinz Breakfast. They were the Heinz family. So in honor of them, we call it Heinz Breakfast. Um, they used to have, we would come to their breakfast and they had like five people. And the first one we had, there was over 130 people that showed up to breakfast. <laughs> it was insanity um <laughs> and uh, i make pancakes and waffles from scratch and we have fair trade organic coffee oftentimes donated by third street stuff um and stuff. <laughs> people show up uh anybody from sex workers to the mayor will show up for breakfast and of course we have not been able to do this during covid but it is the most rich and beautiful thing in my life besides like my kids because i'm getting to know my neighbors and my neighbors are getting to know one another and there's nothing like breaking bread or you know breaking waffles with <laughs> so what's this book when is this book coming so, out that you're writing so the book is really and you all like i know that at the end of this i i have to have you know something to share so i do have something to share um that i've written about this but the book is a long time coming um so i worked with the carnegie center um, to work with a coach to start crafting it. And I'm just in the editing phase right now. And I have two very small children and three jobs. So I'm, it's slow going. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but I anticipate by the end of 2021, uh, it will finally be ready to put out there. And I don't, I haven't decided if I'm self-publishing or I have two publishers that are interested in it or two agents that are interested in it. Uh, but I haven't decided if I'm going to go that route or self-publish. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But there's a lot of editing <laughs> happening right now. Um, so this book is about the people that we've met, but also about this inner turmoil of doing, being a good neighbor without, um, without being a jerk, I guess. <laughs> uh being a good neighbor and really listening and seeing what are the needs of our neighbors that we can walk alongside them without being paternalistic mm. we live here this is our life so it's not like a, our neighbors are a project you know our our neighbors are our neighbors and we're going to live here for a long time my kids are growing up with our neighbors so if my kids know bert the drug dealer and they say hi to them every day when they walk to school in the morning, they also are going to understand that there are no jobs for unskilled workers in our neighborhood. And that's why Mr. Burt does what he does, you know? So just being able to have that kind of view is really important to us to also not make Mr. Burt like a story, right? That like an anecdote for our own like means, if that yeah. makes sense. He's a real person and he deserves the same respect that I do when I walk in the church doors and I'm given a sermon for the day, you know, like, um, yeah, I think so that's what the book is about and how we are grappling with entering the story and how we're entering the story and trying not to be jerks about it. 
So yeah, if people follow you um, on Instagram, Tanya Torp Consultant, they'll probably learn more about that book coming out or go to your website, tanyatorp.com. That's great. You've just mentioned your boys so many times. Can we talk Mm -hmm. about your babies? (laughs) The most precious things ever. So we uh, suffer from infertility, like so many people. And um, we are late blooming parents. So um, I am 46 years old and I have a three-year-old and a (laughs) four-year-old. And I love it. They keep me on my toes. I'll tell you that. Um, So we decided that we would do foster care. We thought about doing all those, you know, um, going to the specialist and all of that. And it's not something that we could afford, but also just in the work that I do at Step by Step, knowing how many of our moms were in foster care, how many of our moms have kids that are currently in foster care, like just wanting to be a part of the solution. So started doing foster care, had no idea what to expect. And a few months in, they put this three month old baby in our hands and like, and we think there's like, it's so anticlimactic. The like worker shows up with this little baby and she's like, he'll be with you probably for 30 days and then he's going home. And I won't tell his family story because it's theirs to tell, but it did not end up happening that way. And there's addiction involved. And so um, he still gets to see his mom. He's four years old now. He was three months old when the social worker just left him with us. And we looked at each other and we were like, well, now what? Um, He's still alive. He's doing great. So um, he still has a relationship with his bio mom and knows who she is. And um, we have birthday parties with her and that kind of thing. But um, his name is Atticus and he is hilarious and um, a little actor. He'll probably be in one of your acting classes. (laughs) He has a character called the old man that he does as a four-year-old walking with a cane and everything. It's (laughs) spot on. And then we have another one um, that we call baby D who we got at a year and a half um um his story is really hard there was just a lot of abuse so i won't um i can't go into all of the story but every abuse that you can think of happened to him and we got him at a year and a half and we were his fifth home within three months and the social workers were like listen if you're going to disrupt this we need to know now because we need him in a home where he can stick around for a while um and so we've had a lot of behaviors at one point we were in five therapies a week we're we're now down to two therapies a week and there will probably be future therapies but he and atticus are two peas in a pod and they love each other and he's like that's my brother so we're in the process of um adopting him so that will happen um probably within the next year or so that that adoption will happen but being in foster care um means taking a lot of classes um being at the beck and call of social workers who are working their tails off and just have way too many cases um so we probably twice a month we have um mandatory meetings where they you know come to our house except for during COVID, but they come in our house and they make sure that we're taking care of them that kind of thing how long have you had baby d now We've had him for a oh like two years, almost two years, almost two years. So he fits right in, and he too is hilarious, um, in a different way. Um, I think that Atticus will probably be um, kind of a nerdy student, and Baby D will probably beat people up for him. So- <laughs> <laughs> we try to channel that. <laughs> Positive things right now. My nephews. 
<laughs> I know. So we're gonna get into dance class. We're gonna get into acting. We're gonna do some pummeling. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna have to channel that a little bit. But they are two peas in a pod and love each other dearly. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night to them giggling and have snuck Aww. into one another's rooms and just the whole situation. <laughs> oh, it makes me so happy. <sighs> so I know that self-care, it, we've been talking about, you know, your self-care journey and how important that is to you. Mm-hmm. So how, from someone who is still very much trying to master that art, how do you manage self-care with all of the things that you do those two boys a husband I mean how 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 yeah and your boundaries that you were talking about earlier too and it just seems like everybody wants a piece of you because it feels like you have so much to give and you're you're every place every place knows you and everybody wants tanya torp involved with their stuff we're guilty of it um yeah so how do you set the boundaries i'll do anything for y'all first of all uh, <laughs> we'll do anything probably for you. shouldn't have said that because then i'll get a call <laughs> next week right <laughs> um i'm a big fan of the office so michael scott says somehow i manage um so the truth of it is I took a class with coach Colleen, Colleen Eldridge a while ago about self-care that rocked my world and just how important it is. And since then it has been seven, a seven year journey of trying to cultivate that for myself and sometimes failing and sometimes doing really well. So I will show you all one of the ways that I do take care of myself is I have this, I have to have like a paper planner right and so i'm about to let my secrets out so this i'm about to share secrets okay secrets with the peoples all right so (laughs) get ready to tell on myself because people are about to figure it out um what i do just y'all heard it here first let me see if everywhere it's yellow yeah it's a self-care day so the whole thing was yellow right that one whole section is yellow it's fridays so i tell people will be like tanya can we meet on Friday to Sunday? And I'll be like, I have an appointment. They don't need to know it's with myself. That's right. <laughs> the appointment's with Tanya. Okay. Um, so I, I do, because I have three jobs, as I mentioned, that is the one day where nothing can happen. And I do take one of my kids goes to therapy in the morning. And then for the rest of the day, if I want to Netflix on the couch, or if I want to do some studying to write a sermon, or if I want to go for a walk, go chill out, whatever I want to do, it's mine. Even my husband might say, so, hey, you want to, nope, sure don't, <laughs> Tanya time, yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. I got an appointment with Tanya all day now, long. And I, and I choose the day that the kids are not home, right? So they're not home so that I'm not like having to try to divide my time. So that is very purposeful. And I encourage that in my co-laborers. I set that tone. For my co-laborers we do not work on fridays and do not answer your phone and if i send you an email you need to like bless me out as my mama would say don't curse me out bless me out <laughs> um so that has helped and then the the boundaries you know what i was telling you all earlier is that holding space for people actually gives me life doing these trainings actually gives me life it's another part of me that I get to access that I get to cultivate. 
but I have to be very careful not to run myself into the ground. So um, self-care days, having a fantastic therapist. I believe in therapy. Let's normalize therapy. Let's normalize black women going to therapy. Let's normalize everybody. Men, (laughs) get you a therapist in 2021. Heal some of that stuff. So I'm about like that, you know, therapy is a big part of my life. Um, And so I have a great therapist and just like taking that time for myself. I also, my husband will tell you this. He's not the greatest gift giver in the world. He loves me dearly. Don't have him buy you a gift because it ain't going to work out. So after years of like having arguments about it for my birthday, he was like, why don't you just do what you want to do? So Every year for my birthday, I go to Los Angeles for two weeks and spend that time with my cousin, who's actually his cousin. And she's a producer, so she's gone all day. So we are together at night, but during the day, she's got all these movies because she has to watch them. I'm laying on the couch. I'm not going to say who she is. She does not have the same last name, but she's in the producer's guild. So I get to see the movies before they go to the theater while I'm on the couch. That's so fun. Then she comes home and we watch them together because she has to watch them. Uh So we watch them together or I have watched them. I'm like, girl, I don't know if you're going to like this one. Wait wait till I'm gone to watch this by yourself. I've already (laughs) seen it. Check it out later. So that gives me this time of just like me in a warm environment. My birthday's in December. Um, so I have to set aside times where I am saving some of that money from this consulting to take care of myself. Yeah. So I do not work for those two weeks. Don't call me because I don't. I just don't. Mm. So setting aside those times. And then another thing Coach Colleen taught me is that look at your billable hours. And this is very like, this is very capitalistic, but we live in a capitalistic society. So what are you going to do? I'm just saying. So. She's like, look at your billable hours. Are you spending so much time like cleaning your house as opposed to your billable hours and cleaning your house is a constant like stressor for you that you can hire somebody a couple of hours a week, then do it. Mm. Do those things that you can afford to do for yourself. If it's not that, if you can't afford that and you're not working three jobs, then then find that thing that eats away at your time that is just so hard and figure out a way to outsource that mm-hmm. even if you have to barter i mean i would gladly barter like training <laughs> training time you know um to be able to have somebody come in and, and do that for me or do something else that i don't do well that takes up more of my time yeah. than it is necessary so think about those spaces in your life where you're like I could literally pay somebody $200 to do that, or I could spend eight of my hours where I could actually bill 150 to $300 an hour doing it myself. Mm. Mm-hmm. And to kind of think about it from that, from that standpoint, if you're able. Um, and, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who do not, do not have the means to do that, but there are ways to kind of barter um, and which I've had to do for years. I mean, there were for years, especially when y'all met me, I didn't even have insurance when I was working at Step by Step. Like I was like uninsured and my mom's had better insurance than me. Um, so I understand the struggle of financially not being able to take care of the things you need to, but there are other things that you might be able to do um, in order to free up some of that space in your life for the things that are really like, I just cannot put my energy into this. Hmm. 
So that's helped a lot too. Oh, I'm going to take that. That just gives me all kinds of ideas. Thank you. <laughs> it helps a lot. And then I've also started just like eating better and drinking more water, which is drinking water is really hard for me, but I've started eating that being conscious of what I eat and not as a, um, you know, we have a big problem with fat phobia in this country, but um, as a, as a way of, of being able to chase my kids around without huffing and puffing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. being more conscious of, and where my food comes from you know I buy a lot of fruits and vegetables from Black Soil who is an organization that um, supports Black farmers lifts up Black farmers um, who many of them have had their land stolen and all kinds of things um, so I do a CSA with them which makes me really pay attention to all of the fruits and vegetables and learn how to mm. make new things that I've never learned how to make before and like I'm like people what do I do with kohlrabi what do I do with this um, figure out what do I, how do I eat turnips? What is happening? But getting more involved in the, where does my food actually come from? Where are my clothes made? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Supporting folks like Sarita Benedict Bailey Begley, who is a beautiful, like she calls herself a strength seamstress, but I call her like a magician who makes the most beautiful clothing and scarves and those kind of things. If I can support her rather than, you know, Amazon, glad to do it. So those kind of things as you're able, as you're able, that is, that becomes my self-care. I think I have probably the most important question that, that has been in our list of questions that we had. We had lots and lots for you. We have so many things that we wanted to talk to you about, and we're going to start to bring it home now, but (laughs) this question has to be asked and it's the most important one. Which is your favorite doctor? Mm, there is a no question. David Tennant, number 10. Yes. All day long <laughs> is my doctor. David Tennant is my doctor. And if I don't even not, know what you all are talking about. Gosh, you guys, I start getting all <laughs> flustered. Um, if you have not watched Staged, it is on Hulu. It is David Tennant and his wife, Georgia Tennant. And it is um, Michael, why have I forgotten his last name? Who's an incredible actor too. I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting his name right now. Not that he's gonna watch this, but he might. Sorry, (laughs) Michael. Um, And his wife, and it is, they're in the middle of quarantine like we all are. And it is the most incredible show that they've put together all on Zoom. And it is- Staged? Staged actors, these these actors bringing you, Michael Sheen, that's his name, Michael Sheen. Oh, Michael Sheen. Who we all love. It's on, it's on Hulu. Oh, I'm going to. And I believe it's also on BBC, but I can't afford to get the BBC streaming. So we'll stick with Hulu. Um, But that watching actors in their craft, it's incredible. So David Tennant is my favorite Doctor Who. He's my favorite Doctor. What's your suit? (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Ellie. (laughs) Let's say it together. One, two, three. What's what your, your superpower? Uh, uh, I think I, oh, I've forgotten to look this back up. I think my superpower is bringing people together. Yep. Yeah. I love to say, oh, you know what, Ellie and Vanessa, you know who you should meet? You should meet this person. You guys, what? You guys come over for pancakes and I'm going to introduce you. <laughs> You're going to hit it off. <laughs> Didn't you coin the phrase Vanelli? 
No, I did not, but I love that. Who coined this? I, that. Kate I did not coin it, but I, I, it was Kate who I've used Vanelli. I have used Vanelli, but I did not coin it. <laughs> okay, it was Kate. Sorry. But yeah, I think that that and um holding space for people too yeah. that are very different from me. I think mm. um those are my super my superpowers. Besides the wonderful advice you uh gave about self-care. Um, what is, what's the greatest piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, know who you are. When you know who you are, you're not, I mean, you can't be swayed by awards and platitudes, nor can you be swayed by people who critique you and don't like what you do. Know who you are. That uh, I give that advice to young moms too, because you can't be swayed by some dude who wants to come into your life and just sit on your couch. Like you can't, if you know who you are, it is. It leads to many, many roads. Mm -hmm. So I've been given that advice more than once in my life. If you could have billboards on the highways of our country, what would they say? Believe black women. Oh. Believe black women. Thank you for that. We're going to transition on that note to our campfire section. The campfire is a moment for our guests to share inspiration with our listeners and us. The campfire represents storytelling in an intimate setting that is unique to the people who are present. In our activism work, we refer to this as the closed container or circling. So, Tanya, what are you going to share today? I don't know how long I have, so I would love for you all to just stop me when you need to stop me. Okay. But I wanted to read an excerpt from my book. Um, the names have been changed, but it is about um, two of my neighbors, Patty and Shannon, and I want to give a content warning that it does talk about sexual assault. Okay. Okay. I'd love for you to so share I'm gonna that. I'm going to read it, and you all, and this is, um, I will say, uh, edit number like six of probably like 600 that need to happen, so, <laughs> um, but I'd love to share this with you. So, Patty and Shannon. Thank you. I'm up at 5 a.m. snatching any moments I can get to write, groggily sitting at the head of our expansive 12-seating mahogany table. The house won't wake for at least two hours, and for now, it's just me. The people in their cars I hear around the corner and the crickets outside sharing this space. I lean back in my chair and stare at the 10-foot ceilings as if looking for inspiration, rubbing the bridge of my nose, willing the ideas to come quickly as I covet this rare time for myself. My mind wanders to thoughts about how much I love this room, thinking about the times it comes alive, bustling with activity. It is always full of life, yet can transition into intimacy with ease. From neighborhood association meetings to a candlelit dinner with my husband, the room just feels like home. The clutter of too many chairs, a mixture of modern and classic, and a corner filled with art supplies tells a story of gathering. To my immediate left sits an ivory-colored rocking chair, hand-painted with looping harvest scenes accented in gold. 
the lacquered and polished skin chipped and faded long before we found it, but the memory of its previous life is just below the surface. It smells like an old bookstore where patrons dig for treasures not easily unearthed. The stuffed back seat and cushions purchased from a local thrift store are a teal-like color that doesn't exist in nature, yet the rocker sits with arms spread, seemingly beckoning guests. It's the first place they gravitate when they walk through our doors. I return to my writing and soon become distracted again. There's a pile of laundry sitting in a basket by the back door that has waited to be folded and put away for three days. Asher, our precocious as a toddler, gray and black tabby cat, decided to take up residence when the temptation of days old laundry was just too much for him. (laughs) He opens one eye, yawns and stretches his elegant paws from atop the pile lazily and returns to his slumber. I look up from writing and sigh, knowing I'll end up rewashing at least the top of the pile from which he's perched. I barely notice the storm rolling in. It sounds like steam rising from the simmer of soon-to-be-boiling water. Quickly, a smattering of effervescent bubbles appear, then the eruption of a full boil within moments. I stand to unplug my computer as the boom of the thunder hits, followed by a flash of lightning, and peer through our large picture window at the two Victorian-style homes that pass for apartments across the street. Gray doom casts a cloud over those 100-year-old buildings, even when the sun is at its zenith. The two old homes have been Frankensteined into 14 sad efficiency apartments constantly in disrepair. A local slumlord does minimum upkeep and no one calls code enforcement because if the apartments are condemned in a city with affordable housing crisis, where would these tenants even go? Underneath the sounds, I observe a disheveled white man in his late 60s wearing a winter coat as he exits his upstairs apartment and begins screaming into the wind. It's late enough in the summer that I still need to run the air conditioner and his coat is zipped up to his chin swallowing his slight frame and puffly, puffy Michelin tire mascot rolls. I can't quite make out what he's saying, but it's guttural and full of rage and fear, like a hunted wild animal surrounded by predators. I am compelled by some force to open the front door and step out onto the covered porch. Water laps at the tan painted wood. Am I looking to see if he needs some assistance? Am I trying to hear what he's been screaming? Or am I just a voyeur, a curious witness? Someone yells, shut up, Roy, but he doesn't seem to hear them. The rain begins to fall and is soon stabbing the earth in sheets. Garbled sounds hit my ears with the same force as the rain. Roy continues intermittently screaming screaming until the storm dies down. I wonder whether or not he will still have a voice when it's all over. Drenched, he walks back up the stairs and into the building. The front apartments are the coveted spots because they offer porches as extra living space. Porches become parlors. A cast of rent by the week characters quickly morphs from one into another, shape shifting as they come and go. Skinheads, drug dealers, elderly folks, young parents, people with felonies looking for work and moving to on to other efficiencies in the middle of the night before next week's rent is due. It usually starts with a head nod then an exchange of minor pleasantries followed by a walk across the street for introductions. The longer someone stays, the more pleasantries we exchange. 
Patty and her partner, Sharon, are in their 50s. After their second month as residents, Patty walks across the street and asks about the garden one day as they strike up a friendship. Her hair is shoulder length and often appears under a baseball cap. This morning, I noticed what passes for tattoos, faded and misshapen on her shaking hands, tell me that she is in need, in need of a fix. To supplement her disability and support her pill habit, she delivers drugs all around the neighborhood for a 25-year-old flamboyant and effervescent Black man named Tyrone, who always seems in perpetual motion. He has developed quite the empire in the area, despite the rampant homophobia among the other dealers. I guess if he makes them money, they don't seem to care how he spends his free time. I see her take books from the little free library in front of our home one day, and I ask her what she likes to read and find out that she is obsessed with Louis L'Amour Westerns. I ask my friends on social media for any titles they may have laying around their house that they no longer need. That day, I knock on Patty's door and deliver five different books, and it solidifies our friendship. She invites me to her barbecue she throws for the other neighbors on the coveted front porch. Everyone is bringing something, but you can just come, she tells me. I bring a dessert and meet some of the new neighbors. What kind of nonprofit y'all running over there, one of them asks. It's just our house, I reply. I invite everyone to Heinz breakfast. Only Patty and Shannon come. One day, Patty knocks on our door asking to, quote, borrow four eggs, for four pieces of bread and a cup of sugar because her food stamps don't come in until tomorrow. Patty, you don't have to borrow pieces of bread. You can just have them. Don't try to bring me four pieces of loose bread over here tomorrow, I laugh. She laughs too. Her shoulders relax. The next day, she offers me a marijuana cigarette. When I decline, she says, I thought everybody smoked. I tell her I never have done a drug in my life. And she stares at me for a long moment. Don't worry, I tell her quickly. You'll get no judgment from me. Well, you won't get any judgment from me either, she responds quickly, laughs, and winks at me. A few weeks later, Patty comes over and asks me to pray with her. Nothing specific, she replies, answering my question about how I can pray. I invite her inside, and we pray together. When we finish, she tells me about this Bible that she had when she was younger that really used to help her. She describes the cover in some sort of detail that a journalist would use, meticulous and accurate, down to the font. I look it up on my phone and show her a photo. Is this what you're talking about? Oh my God, yes. I can't believe it, ex it still exists. You think you can find it for me? I post the photo on Facebook and ask my friends if anybody has a copy laying around. It's from the 1970s and has been reprinted, but I took a chance anyway. Within moments, a friend who lived in Lexington briefly, but now lives in Portland, sends me a message. Hi, Tanya. Just saw your post about looking for a copy of The Way. I'm not a particularly religious person, spiritual, yes, but I believe in whatever is positive that gives someone hope. I found the book on Amazon and would like to buy it for your friend. What's a good address to have it shipped? This is the kind of thing that happens with radical hospitality. Others are always willing to join in the efforts. It took several weeks for it to arrive. I walked across the street with anticipation. I couldn't wait to see her face. Shannon was sitting on the porch and I asked if Patty was around. Wait, I don't have my hearing aid in, she says. Shannon has been deaf for several years due to an ear infection and her normal posture is silent observer while she waits for Patty to do all the talking. Once her hearing aid is in, I repeat my request. She stands up, stretches, and walks inside the apartment. They both emerge a few minutes later, and I hand Patty the package. Tears spring to her eyes immediately. You found it. You found it. I cannot believe that you found it. 
Patty and Shannon become a fixture in our lives. They bring toys for the baby and leave them on the porch regularly. We have no idea where they get them from. They have no children of their own, and these are items not readily found. A rattle from the 1950s in pristine condition, a toy horse that neighs, a little red wagon. All of the items are lovingly cleaned and in perfect shape. One morning as I'm getting into my van, Patty approaches. Her eye is black. Her lip is bloody. And she looks as if she's not slept in weeks. Can I talk to you for a minute, she says. I'm late for work, I say distractedly. And oh my goodness, you have quite a shiner there. I was raped last night. I couldn't register the words, but I stopped fishing for my keys and listened. Don't tell Shannon. I was someplace I shouldn't have been last night doing something I shouldn't be doing. I just need to talk to you. Moments before, I had been running late for work and annoyed that I was being interrupted. Now I'm having this conversation with Patty that was the most important conversation I have ever had. She'd been delivering drugs and ended up at a party with a bunch of people she didn't know. The drugs, the food, the alcohol were flowing, and she, quote, got lit and stayed the night. She woke up with a man forcing his penis into her mouth. He told me that I had to do it and that I couldn't say no, and he smacked me. He was so much stronger than I am. Don't tell Shannon, she repeated. She doesn't know where I was. She says this to me and not, and not meeting my eyes. I can't tell the police because of the situation. I could get killed. I just had to tell someone. Suddenly, Patty was a puddle in my arms. She's sobbing and repeating how it was all her fault. This is not your fault, I said, looking into her eyes. I don't care how high you were, where you were, what you were doing in the first place, none of it. When you say no and someone forces you, it's rape and it's not your fault. I offered to take her to the hospital, but she had already gone. They offered her numbers that she could call later. I was unprepared for the arrival of grief that shrouded me. There was nothing I could do for her. I was her only witness. Was that enough? Could that be enough? It would never be enough. The Bible didn't save her from this moment. I couldn't save her from this moment. It was not my job to save her. I guess in her own way, she was saving herself. I would check on Patty several times over the next few weeks, but she never wanted to talk about the moment of vulnerability and pain. She did what so many women have ex who have experienced sexual violence do. She seemingly moved on. But I knew what that night had cost her, and I instinctively knew that this was not the first time maybe not even the last time that someone would steal her dignity. I'm walking to my car again on a brisk winter day. The first snow has yet to fall, but it threatens. We've been clean and sober for seven weeks, Patty tells me with a big grin. Shannon smiles too. We're leaving. The program says we need to change people, places, and things, and I can't stay here and keep being around all this stuff if I want to stay clean. Where will you go, I ask, hopefully, um, already missing my friends. I know what happens when people move away from this place. They say, they say they'll keep in touch, but they never do. The relationship born of a timid trust, then shared community, are severed like the head of a snake on its way to becoming shoes. It is always sudden. It is always hard. Under the cover of night, a few weeks later, they leave. It has been three years, and I still think of them every single day when I look at the porch across the street. Wow. That's incredible writing. Let's let's start with that. Incredible. What? Thank you. Cool. That's just a little snippet of being in in the space to mm. open yourself up to what radical hospitality can do. 
and and I term radical hospitality as mm -hmm. her transformational connection through welcome. It's mm -hmm. transformational that she welcomed me, that I welcome her, um, and it's a connection, whether, no matter how long it lasts. So, um, just as meaningful as my relationship mm -hmm. might be to her, she is to me. So I'm just right now trying to the juxtaposition between being sharing those stories and you know having permission to share those stories and just changing some of the details for people but also like where is the fit in there and what is the message besides being hospitable there's just a hard you know now there's new neighbors that are moving in am i just as hospitable to people who've gentrified the neighborhood like it's a it's really tenuous so i'm really working through that as i continue to edit well, thank you for sharing that with us. It was just lovely. There was no way anyone was going to be going to stop that, Anya. <laughs> <laughs> no, read the rest of the book. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, it makes me think of, um, I, I don't know. I think a lot of times we talk about being fearless in our pursuits, but also being fearless in the radical hospitality, including a curiosity and openness like you're talking about. Like, don't fear people. Don't fear people's experiences. Don't fear people's choices. Um, just opening your heart and your home uh, and knowing that she could approach you just to be fed for a day or two, you know? Yeah. What, what's four eggs? What's four pieces of bread? It, nothing to be scared of to let people know you and to know people I love that yeah that's exactly it that's exactly it <sighs> um so I guess just to close up we're gonna ask you a few rapid response questions because we like to put people on the spot <laughs> fine with me <laughs> I work with teenage girls you can't put me on the spot I'm just saying <laughs> wait okay so right before rapid response i know it's it's every word you say is so worthy of people's time that i'm just gonna go a little longer where is be bold be bold is another program that tanya started are you all planning for something post-pandemic is it on hold until the planning can start again yeah so we haven't done a be bold in a couple of years and i am at the point where i you know Every nonprofit should say, if I close my doors, is it going to make a difference? And there are some other nonprofits that have popped up that are meeting that population's needs. Mm. And so the board and I just decided to take a hiatus and we're going to come back to it actually in 2021, Lisa. Let's come back and see if we're going to do another, you know, um, event. These are yearly events that are workshops for young women to try different things and to express themselves. And it has been worthy space, like it's been incredible. But are there other spaces where that is already happening and those young women are getting what they need? Um, I don't know. And that's part of my self-care too. It's like, it's a lot of work to put together this event where over 300 girls come and there's 200 volunteers and a lot of moving parts. Um, and so is that something that I want to continue to lend my energies to or is step-by-step -step and radical hospitality and these two little babies that are in my life now that yeah. weren't before, are those the things that I'm more focused on now? So um, and I think that's good to ask that. Anybody in a nonprofit should ask that if my doors close today, how big of an impact does that make in the community? Yeah, 
So that's where we're at. We're this year we'll decide whether or not we keep it going or turn it into something else or let it die. Okay. Yeah. We'll keep our ears open. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Rapid response time. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is your guilty pleasure? Oh, um, really, um, teen like shows like, like, um, like teen romance type where, oh, oh, what is that called? <laughs> all the, to all the boys I've loved before that one and, uh, K dramas. Oh. I love Korean dramas. Love nobody's business. I will watch a Korean drama. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> Korean K dramas. And I swoon. Oh, <laughs> they always have these beautiful little romances that like there are romance are like, hi, how are you? Here's my bed. Theirs are like, hi, oh, 20 nice. years later, I finally get to kiss nice. you. So yeah. that's what I love about them. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. I love a K drama. What's your favorite curse word? Ooh, I'm gonna have to say as a as a pastor, uh, the f bomb. It just says so much. It really, it it has many facets. I love it, so and much. it means many different things. Mm -hmm. I'm like, if, if if a parishioner drops an f bomb, I'm like, that was well placed, sir. Well placed, ma'am. Yes. <laughs> What's your favorite sound? Children laughing. It's a, it's a toss up between children laughing and not in a creepy children in the corn way, but like children having genuine laughter and the sound of the ocean. Mm. Both my favorites. What's your least favorite sound? Cats having a fight. Ooh. I have a lot of cats around here and my husband is a cat lover. Cats really? having fights is like yeah. the worst for me. Like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I think um, being a therapist um, is still po a possibility. Like if I want to go back to school, LCSW, licensed clinical social worker, I think would be something I do. I was a lawyer for a while, but I just married one instead. So whatever. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> if you could bring back anyone from the dead, who would it be? You know, I'm supposed to say Jesus, right? But oh. um, I'm going to say, <laughs> that's what the pastor is supposed to say. Um, but I actually think someone like Nina Simone or Lena Horn or James Baldwin, who faced a lot of what we're facing today and made sense of it in their own way, that's wisdom that we, yeah. we need in this moment. So any of them. Uh, what turns you on? Ooh, intelligence is like the sexiest. If you are a geek, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, yeah. that is the sexiest thing ever. Like I if know. somebody's like, I'm a Whovian and I also am from like Harry Potter house of whatever. And they say that I'm like, I'm a Ravenclaw. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're a big nerd. I'm in love with you. <laughs> what do you want people to say about you when you're gone? That... I inspired them to love well. We'll close with that because you're Tanya Torp and that is quint quintessential Tanya Torp. Yes. Um, for everybody listening, 
I'll tell you again, you can follow Tanya at, at Tanya Torp Consultant. You can go to her website, tanyatorp.com. Um, you'll find out more about her book there. You can look at her consulting work, uh, consider her for your consulting work. She's obviously an incredible person to have in the room. That's why we were so excited that she was our first guest. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely afternoon. Thank you, Tanya. Hey, it's Margaret from Voices Amped. Are you as amped as I am after that conversation? Then it's time to take some amped actions. First of all, connect with Tanya Torp directly through her Instagram and website. Instagram handle is at Tanya, T-A-N-Y-A, Torp Consultant. All one word, capital T, capital Torp, capital Consultant. And then uh, connect with Torp Consulting at TanyaTorp.com. Some of the organizations that Tanya talked about are step-by-step, -step, which serves more than 250 moms under the age of 24. You can donate and contribute supplies to help these moms during the pandemic at sbslex.org. Tanya also talked about the Racial Equity Institute, which helps leaders and organizations who want to proactively understand and address racism, both in their organization and in the community where the organization is working, including in online formats. You can find them at www.racialequityinstitute.com. Tanya also told us about the work of Black Soil, Our Better Nature, which supports Black Kentuckians in building, farming, growing, and producing operations. Check out their website at www.blacksoilky.com and find them on Facebook and Instagram. And then be sure to follow some of the amazing people that Tanya talked about. Coach Colleen, Colleen Eldridge on Facebook and at Coach underscore Colleen, C-O-L-E-N-E -E, on Instagram. She also talked about Opa Oye Johnson, who's the founder and CEO of Sokari and Company Consulting at info at sokariandco.com. Sokari is spelled S-O-K-A-R-I. And finally, she told us about the work of Sereda Bendit Begley at www.soreyda.com. And you can find her work on Facebook at Future Fashion KY Lex. All right, Ampers, let's go take action. And that's a wrap. Thank you listeners and our guest for sharing the space with us. If you don't want to miss our next episode and you'd like to follow our work, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Voices Amped. Voices Amped is part of our arts activism initiative, Voices Amplified. Our team is me, Jenny Benavides, Vanessa Becker-Weig, Ellie Clark, Dr. Margaret McGladry, and our intern and editor, Kennedy Johnson. If you have any questions that you'd like to hear from future guests, or if you ever have questions for us, hit us up on social media or email us on our website, voicesamplified.net. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, you can watch all of our interviews on YouTube if you search and subscribe to Voices Amplified. We'd like to thank Lauren Rourke for our podcast art, Tiffany DuPont Novak for our logo design, and Vanessa Davis for her beautiful underscore, I'm doing okay. You can follow her music at Songwriter Vanessa. We'll see you next time, everyone. Voices Amped is generously sponsored by the Kentucky Foundation for Women. For more information about our guests, podcast content, or if you want to learn more about Voices Amplified, follow our advocacy work or support our 2021 independence campaign. You can visit our website, voicesamplified.net, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram. 
And remember, be curious, be courageous, take up space, and make some noise. <laughs>